This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined finally by my guest today after a few months of trying to get them get them on and myself postponing, himself postponing, but here we are. I've got speaker, author, researcher and creator of the Archive of the Impossible at Rice University, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Happy, happy to be here even though it took a long time. It did. And you have been someone that people have, and I don't just say this because it would be BS otherwise, but people have asked to have you on for quite a while. So it's nice to finally get this one over the line as such. Um, <laughs> if it goes really badly, no one ever has to hear it. I just won't release it. But that's never been the case the case yet. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to it. And and Jeff, there's a whole lot of ground to cover potentially with you that I feel we're going to have to get you back on at another time to, to cover various aspects. There might be a little bit of a sidebar. Um, but I also want to cover your recent time at the Sol Foundation inaugural conference but i want to start off talking about you um, your own background and what's been your journey to getting to this point discussing quote unquote the impossible yeah i mean it's it's been a long journey um i'm 61 years old and um my journey began probably as a child i i was uber pious i was super pious i grew up uh, roman catholic in a German farm family uh, and small business owner in Nebraska, in the middle of the of the U.S., and I became very religious, and um, I wanted to be a monk, um, and I joined a seminary and trained essentially to become a monk, and I fell in love with the comparative study of religion uh, when I was in this Benedictine seminary, and so I went on to graduate school in a um, a secular a secular university, University of Chicago, and became someone who studies religion comparatively. I, I started out in India. Um, I then switched to um, California and the American counterculture. Um, and so there's a long journey there. There's a long, I mean, I, I've done a lot of different things, including medieval Christianity, um, Hindu, modern Hinduism, and in modern, the modern counterculture, I got interested in what I call the impossible today through looking at the counterculture. Um, I sat down with a lot of people. I talked to a lot of people who told me really incredible stories that I knew didn't happen, um, but that I knew happened. <laughs> and I had heard these stories before, you know, in the past in historical texts. And I, we were also, we were always trained to think of these as exaggerations or as power plays or perhaps even as just lies. And I realized that none of that quite worked. <laughs> Actually, it didn't work at all. Um, it wasn't just, it didn't quite work. It was like clearly not true. And so I got really interested in the early 2000s in this disconnect between people's extraordinary experiences and how academics or intellectuals simply won't treat them, uh, simply don't think about them. And so I turned to those pretty intensely, and I wrote a couple books. One was called Mutants and Mystics, uh, which was really on superhero comics and science fiction and the paranormal experiences of, of artists and, and authors, really, behind those stories. And I wrote a book right before that called Authors of the Impossible, which, which is really my theory of what the paranormal is about. 
Um, and it's and the book basically argues that it's very much about language and communication and information, and that it's it's really what creates the stories or the narratives that then later become religion or culture or civilization. Um, and I don't I don't mean that in a reductive way, Andy. I, I'm not I, I wasn't arguing that the paranormal is simply about language. Um, I was arguing that language itself there's something paranormal about language. And that when we write about the paranormal, it also writes us in a in a really weird and eerie way. Uh, and so I was trying to get at this sort of deeper question about the paranormal and how it produces story and how, how we're all embedded in these stories, whether we know it or not. And that's really what got me into this. I The UFO thing, um, you know... I had to write about the UFO when I wrote about the American counterculture because UFOs are everywhere in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., and you just can't avoid the topic. But as I got into the paranormal more broadly, it, it, it hit me hard that a lot of the experiences people talk about in the UFO experience are not unique to the UFO phenomenon. They're, you find them in near-death experiences. You find them in precognitive dreaming. You, you find them in entity encounters, you find them in legends and folklore and myth and all over the place. And so I approached the UFO phenomenon very much as someone who looks at these things cross-culturally. That, that's kind of where I am today. It's a really interesting way to get to this, like you say, from that that beginning, looking to go into being a monk and, and how you kind of segue into this, not totally unrelated, obviously, with the religious aspect on things. Had you ever had any sort of either paranormal or, or UFO experience growing up or, or through into yes. adulthood? Yeah, everybody asks me that. Um, yes and no. Um my, you know, my professional work and my writing about these things is not dependent on my own experiences, um, but it relies on them for a kind of sympathy or solidarity. I have to say that. Um, I had one sort of overwhelming paranormal experience in Calcutta in the fall of 1989 that I often talk about. It involved a, um, an out-of-body experience while I was uh, sleeping and a state of a court of subtle energy invasion or abduction, I, I suppose we'd say now. I didn't have that language then. This was 1989. I wouldn't have spoken of this as, a, as an abduction experience, but it had all the marks of one. Um, but it made a lot of sense in the context of the Shakta Tantra and the, the kind of the religious and cultural tradition I was studying at the time. And that struck me. You know, there was something about the Bengali religious context that made the, this experience not only possible, but plausible. Um, and so that, that, that sort of, I suppose that's kind of one source of my conviction that this has something to do with religion, uh, has something to do with, with human spirituality. In terms of the UFO, I didn't, I actually didn't think I had ever had such a, an experience. And I was sitting, I was watching, it was actually America. America's got talent was the, was the show. And I was sitting there with my mother who was visiting from another town and this really bad car commercial came on with this uh, stupid flying saucer on a string. You know, it was a clearly yeah. a, a hoax. And my mom turns to me and she says, well, Jeff, do you remember the time we saw one of those? <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, 
I don't, I have no memory. And she proceeded to tell me this extraordinary story of not, not only seeing a UFO, but it was a large rectangular craft in the sky over, over Northern Nebraska. And it would, it occurred at night. And she said it was so dramatic that the, we pulled over, we pulled the car over and, and all four of us got out and looked at this thing in the sky. And my first my first reaction was, oh, it had something to do with, with um, the Air Force Base in Omaha, which is, you know, not a couple hundred miles from there. And she said, no, this was rectangular and it obviously couldn't fly, but there it was in the sky. And um, so, I mean, obviously I had an encounter, but I, I don't remember it. It wasn't life-defining as such at that moment. And I think it's fair. You mentioned that that bias that you, you don't have just because you've had some sort of experience, and that's completely fair. I, I use my own couple of sightings as such that I would never call experiences because I think I've, I've spoken to enough individuals who have had true experiences to know that mine's were just sightings, but you wouldn't believe them. I don't think I would believe if someone told me some time ago they saw what I saw. Yeah. So I, I think it's unfair for me to judge completely, even though I may be hypocritical and at times I'll say, I don't think so. But I think you're allowed that opinion, aren't you? That- you know, something, um, one close mentor of mine is Jacques Vallée, and something he says a lot is he wouldn't believe any of the data had he not seen a flying saucer in broad daylight over a suburb in Paris in 1955. I mean, it was just like, uh, there it is. It's it's as clear as the the car going down the highway or the my my neighbor friend. I, this isn't something I can question. So it's that it's that minor experience that I think creates a kind of sympathy or solidarity. And so when people were telling me these stories in California in the two thousands, I was like, oh yeah, that can happen. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, cause it happened to me. I was, I was literally out of my body and I had a kind of energetic download and I had, I had the whole shebang. And so I was like, yeah, I, I, I think you're telling me, I think you're telling me the truth. Yeah. It's a strange one. And that's, I wonder, is that sort of small experience enough that has that knock on effect, especially someone as dramatic as, as Jacques Vallée and the impact he has in the UFO topic and UFO community over the decades. Like you say, had he not had that experience, does he ever get involved at all, especially in the way he has? I don't know. That's a good question. I, you know, I think there were a couple things in Jacques' early life that, that shaped him. One was seeing the, the flying saucer over the suburb in Paris in Pontois. But the other was working at the observatory and hearing his fellow scientists mock and make fun of Amy Michel. And, you know, Jacques was a correspondent with, with Amy Michel. And he, he found their attitudes really arrogant and bizarre. And so I think it was this combination of having such an experience and seeing how the, the topic was treated by cultural elites that, really turned Jacques into who he became. Um, and that in his, you know, his absorption in esoteric literature, I think is, is deeply informative. I think that's not often talked about here, but he certainly talks about it. He certainly writes about it. Um, 
And I swear, I think that's a big part of this, this, this quote. And that's, that's how I connected to Valet's books. When I first read them as a historian of religions, I was like, oh, here is a man doing the history of religions. <laughs> I mean, here is someone who clearly understands the history of folklore and mythology and religion, and who also clearly understands the physics and the astronomy and the computer science. So to me, it was that combination that was so stunning and, and kind of blew me away. Um, it wasn't one of the other. I had had a lot of the history of religions. I knew that intimately. I had studied science. I, I did not have that intimately, but it wasn't one or the other. It was the two together. I often think it just takes that small action for, for things to change for people. When I like analogies now and again. This might be a good one, might be a terrible one. I'll let you be the judge of that. But, you know, if you're sitting on a bus and it's a cold winter's morning, the windows are frosted up, you can't see out the windows and everyone's on the bus, you're all having this same experience. You're all going to somewhere. You might get off sooner or later. However, I'm I'm the guy who likes to roll his sleeve up and, and polish the window so I can see outside. Now, I'm now having a totally different experience because of what I can see through this little little window I've created for myself, whether it's curiosity or nosiness or just habit, I don't know. But everyone else on the bus potentially could be seeing the same thing but they don't because they choose to look ahead stare out the window at the front and see the same thing as everyone else and that just makes me wonder is it just those small differences or small curiosities that either get folks involved in the impossible the paranormal the, this phenomenon that that maybe stop others not ever getting involved or seeing what others could see i think i think with the paranormal it's a, it's a bit trickier um because so many paranormal experiences are negative they're 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 terrifying. So it's not just that you don't rub your window; it's that you have you want the shade down. You don't want to, so you, yeah. you know, so you're not going to let the critter inside the bus. Or it's it's sort of like putting the covers over your head as a child, or 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 being afraid of of going to sleep with the window open, which is which is what I had when I was a little boy. Um, so. I think it's more than that. It's more than a lack of curiosity. There's there's a genuine fear that that people experience. I also think, you know, one of my jokes about paranormal events is that they're trying to get our attention. And what academics and also frankly what religious people often do is they essentially say ignore ignore the event. You know, either ignore it because it's crazy and stupid and it's going to tempt you away from your scientific rational worldview, which is what I think academics or, or conventional scientists often think. Or if you're a religious believer, it's going to distract you from the contemplative goal or from the salvific goal of, of the religion in question. But it's, it's happening. And it's, it's, it's trying desperately to call us into, into some kind of reflection on the story we're caught in. And so I, I personally think that these things need to be paid attention to. It doesn't mean we need to believe them or bow down to them. I'm not suggesting that, but we need to listen to them and to take them very seriously as nudges or, you know, pushes sometimes. In that case, a lot of folks tend to, these days, the paranormal and i think if i say the paranormal you're talking entities spirits ghosts that's what i think of personally um under the same umbrella as the ufo phenomenon do you still think there's quite a distinct difference between those experiences no i don't think there's a distinct difference i mean i'm with jacques on this one i and that gets gets us into trouble of course because 
you know, some people in the UFO world want to suggest it's 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 nuts and bolts. It's a technology. It's a physical craft. And I'm not denying that, but it's also an apparition and a vision. And people who have these encounters often develop extraordinary abilities. They become precognitive or they become clairvoyant or they begin to have dreams. So these, whatever these objects are, they have psychic or spiritual effects on relatively hairless monkeys, i.e. us. Um, And for me, the definition of the paranormal is something that is occurring in the physical environment and the mental world at the same time. It's not one or the other. It's not a hallucination. It's not just a subjective illusion. On the other hand, it's not simply a chair or a wall or a craft out there either. It somehow is participating in both realities and that just shatters all of our boxes. We don't we don't have a way of thinking about that because we as as bodies and brains are splitting up the world constantly into a mental dimension and a, and a material dimension. And I my strong suspicion is that's just not what the world is. It's 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 how we split it up. But but let's own that. Th- those those are our divisions. Those are not divisions out there in reality. Yeah. Um- you, you mentioned the phrase previously and in, in your books, thinking impossibly. Yeah. And I think when I initially see, when I first started looking at your stuff a couple of years back, you know, archive of the impossible, my immediate thought, and it's not this is, you know, Ripley's believe it or not, that type of thing that, you know, it's just kind of weird and wacky things, but it's not, it's just that whole, to many, this is the impossible. There are no UFOs. There are no aliens. There are no ghosts. There are no paranormal, but it's, that's what the impossible is, isn't it? That, and if you could explain that for us, what is thinking impossibly? Sure. So what I mean by the impossible is, is something f- essentially philosophical. Um, and essentially what I mean is that what is possible or impossible is the function of a particular worldview. It's, it's not a function of reality. You know, things that are uh, impossible in one worldview still happen, but they're just ignored or they're dismissed. And, things change from worldview to worldview in a, in a really radical way. I know that as a historian of religions. I mean, things happen in some religious contexts that don't happen in other religious contexts. And so there's something about reality, there's something about possibility and impossibility that's really a function of the human being. It's not a function of reality. Reality itself is not is, is, is impossible all the time, but it's still possible. It still happens. Uh, and the, let me give you an example because I'm just babbling. No, no, go on. Um, take rocks that fall from the sky. You know, in the 16th century, French peasants were reporting these rocks falling out of the sky and into their field, and often they were on fire. And the the scientists in the cities were just like these these farmers are idiots. You know, rocks don't fall from the sky for God's sake. That's stupid. Um, but of course. The peasants were were right. They were absolutely correct about their the things that they were witnessing. And what we needed was a new model of outer space to, to make sense of why, in fact, actually rocks do fall from the sky. And, you know, we call them meteorites now. And so, so what happened there is not that the phenomena changed, but that our model of the universe changed to encompass and keep on the table those things that were always happening but that the 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 uh, scientific elites were saying were not possible, were impossible. 
And that's what I'm saying about all these other things, Andy. I'm saying, look, what we need is a model or a framework to keep all this stuff on the table and and not to keep shoving it off the table and telling us silly things like that it doesn't happen or it can't happen. Of course it happens. Of course it can happen. It does all the time. Stop saying that. Change your view of what reality is, of what the natural world is or how it works so that we can start thinking about these things in a in a more coherent um, and humane way. Those changes throughout history don't normally happen in an instant, usually as a chain reaction or a slow process over time. Is that a phase you think we may be in right now? I wish. I... I think we're in. I think we're in a lot of confusion, um, and I think we're in a lot of trouble, actually. And and I think a lot of that's because of our religions, uh, and not just because of our science. Um, you know, a lot of the resistance to paranormal phenomena is religious resistance. The religious people essentially say this is real, but it's demonic, and that does not help. That does not get us very far. And it also ignores the fact that what every, what, every, what every student of religion knows, really from class one, is that the sacred has a negative aspect and a positive aspect. The, the demon is as numinous as the angel, and the devil is as divine as God is, uh, you know, in the history of religions now. I know that's a the heretical thing to say, but in the larger history of religions, it's certainly true that the sacred is not this force or this energy that's always beneficent and, and helpful. In fact, it's often terrifying, and it will sometimes kill people. It's, it's more like um, radioactive energy than it is, you know, the angel or the unicorn in your daughter's bedroom. Um, and so I think once we step into a larger historical framework and we recognize that the numinous is more like an energy or a power that is that is appearing in the environment, then we are much less likely to say, oh, it's negative, therefore we have to resist it. No, you you don't have to resist it. You have you have to understand it and you have to treat it differently perhaps, but you don't have to deny it. Um, so that's that's really what I'm getting at. I, I worry a lot um, as a as a historian of religions about, frankly, religion um, and the kind of, frankly, the stupidity of of our religions, the ignorance of our religions, and how they do not um, deal adequately with these things. Um, they offer us something important. There's a kind of transcendent or vertical dimension to our religions that's very useful and very powerful, but their widespread condemnation of these phenomena is is really d- destructive, I think, at the end of the day. I, I'm not religious in the slightest myself, but I, I appreciate other people can be to varying degrees. And I've always said, in terms of various religions with a limited you know, knowledge of them, they can't all be right, but they can certainly all be wrong. Um, and, and I just wonder, given the differences between various religions, um, I know they have similarities at times depending on the religion to religion, but given the differences, does that just show that we're potentially, as a species, not in a place that we can accept, you know, a non-human intelligence being declared well, or visiting us, you know? 
Well, okay. So let, let's go to that. Let's let's go to the U.S. and let's go to the, the language of non-human intelligence and let's let's go to Congress and you know the whistleblowers and everything that's going on today. Um, you know, politicians are people too, and their voters are religious in in all kinds of ways, and military people. It turns out are mili- are people too. <laughs> Uh, so are scientists. We're all, they're all people. And if you talk to, if you talk to people who have run some of these programs, some of these classified programs, they will often tell you that where they really met resistance was in the military or in the government from very religious um, military leaders or politicians. And they met resistance on religious grounds, not on military grounds or not, not not on, uh, intellectual grounds, but on religious grounds. And that's, I suppose, that's what I'm most worried about. And I'll give you a good example. In the U.S. now, the UFO phenomena is generally understood within what I call the alien invasion narrative. There's a mythology that the alien is somehow invading uh, our sacred airspace. And therefore, what what we should be about is fighting fighting this alien force and pushing back on this quote unquote threat okay All right that's extremely dangerous um because for one thing i think th- these non-human intelligences if we want to call them that have been with us for thousands of years if they wanted to kill us trust me we would have been food a long time ago it, there's no question in my mind about that so this attitude we have of fighting back or treating these as threats is really a projection of our own violence and our own really ignorance about what's going on, I think. And I think what you see in the States or see what you see in North America, let's say more broadly, is a gradual move out of that alien invasion narrative into something that I think is much more powerful and much more positive. So if you if we want to stick to movies, you know, if, if Independence Day appeared in the 1990s, all about, you know, punching out the alien, as it were, Arrival happened in what, 2017 or 2016. And if you watch the movie Arrival, the military doesn't do anything at all. It's actually, the military stands back and it turns out the reason the alien presence is there is to communicate with human beings because we need each other. And they're going to teach us about the circular nature of time and we're going to do something for them in 3,000 years, which they they somehow know about. So it's, it's a complete break is what I'm trying to say. And I know it's a movie, Andy. I'm not saying Arrival's the truth and Independence Day is not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, no, these are cultural narratives yep. that appear and they grab um, the public in particular ways. And the, the, the way the public has been grabbed, at least in the U.S. over the last 60, 70 years, is through the Cold War, frankly. And, and all we can imagine is this alien. I mean, we, we use the same word alien for, for an illegal immigrant as we do a non-human intelligence. And in France, they used to wor- use the word for someone who was mentally ill. I mean, what, what does that tell you? Hmm. You know? So I think there are resources in history to think about this 
And we have to be more aware of the cultural narrative or the mythology, as we call it in my field, that is driving the whole thing. And a mythology is not a, a bad story or, or a false story. It's a story so deep that we don't know it's a story. It's, it's the water the fish are swimming in. And I think we're in such a story right now. And I think what these paranormal events are trying to do is say, hey, wake up. You're in a story. You're in a story. You're in a movie. Don't, don't you see that? Don't you want and, and, and don't you want to change the story? Do you really like this movie you're in? Because guess what? It ain't working so well for a lot of people. But we're caught in this these narratives. And I think what these events are trying to do is 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 essentially shock us out of that out of that i think as well like it's it's a fair point you raise around these experiences and perception is a big thing and i wonder like if i go into my son's bedroom at night when he's sleeping before i go to bed and tuck him in and accidentally you know nudge him and he wakes up out of his dream with a fright i'm not doing anything malicious there but how he perceives that is someone's in my room i've just woken up i'm scared my heart starts racing he sweats and he might cry but from my point of view i didn't mean that i was trying to trying to do something else and it came from a good place his perception of what's happened could be completely different and actually true story jeff just a few days ago i woke up in the middle of the night and one of my recurring dreams since childhood which always terrifies me is waking up the door opens and no one's there and I woke up during the night, the, looked over at the door, just getting a sense of, you know, something was not quite right, thinking I've just woken up, whatever it might be, and the door opens and my son steps in. But just from the, the whole light being on and a silhouette, I was terrified. He just wanted to come in because he'd woken up during the night and needed the toilet. That was it. But perception in these events can be a big thing. And I wonder, is that a sort of what goes on with some of these some of these incidents? I... I, th I think that does sometimes go on. I also think it's more than that. Um, let, let me give you another example. Take take our dog, which you may have heard earlier. Her name's Delilah. Well, I take her to the veterinarian, and the poor thing just shakes. She shakes uncontrollably because that veterinarian is going to do things like put her out and mm -hmm. take teeth out of her mouth and poker and do all kinds of things that poor Delilah has no idea what's going on. And so, okay, I intend good by that. I intend to take care of Delilah, but she doesn't know that. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, I, I eat meat. You know, what, what is a cow's relationship to a human being? We, I grew up taking care of cattle as it were, but it was so that they could be slaughtered and, and we could eat hamburgers and steaks. So are human beings not demonic vis-a-vis -vis cows? It, it sure looks like it. If I was a cow, I would be very distrustful of human beings. And, and so these non-human intelligences we talk about as demons, well, maybe they are demonic in some sense. Maybe their intentions are not ours fine but our int our intentions are not those of the other species we interact with either yep. so i guess i'm just trying to get us to expand our our sense of um what of value and 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 morality and i also can tell you as again as a historian of religions 
that the word demon, it, it, it just comes from the Greek daimon. And the daimon is not this evil being. The, the, the thing with horns and tail and all that stuff you get out of Christian myth, it all comes from a Christian demonization of the god Pan. You know, it's, it's, a, it's essentially a cultural war that the Christians won and, and the Greeks and the Romans lost. And, okay, well, once you know that, it's like, well, come on. I mean, why are you, why are you still talking about demons as if, as if somehow these are obviously true? No, that's just a cultural war that people won, you know, thousands of years ago, and you're just beating up on other people right now. Interesting. It just makes me think how the common depiction of Santa Claus is Coca-Cola. So, you know, that's, and that's it. That's what people know, but, you know, great market employee. Um, yeah. Some of the, some of that expanding of thinking that you're talking about, um, people are trying to do this through various different ways. Uh, folks like yourself have got conferences going on. And before we talk about the Sol conference, um, let's mention your own events that were hosted in 2022 and 2023 under your archive of the Impossible Banner. Can you talk about those and what those aim to achieve? Yeah, I can. I'd love to talk about those. You know, when I was at the Soul Foundation at Stanford, it reminded me a lot of our own conferences at Rice, by the way, and I, but, but in a very different sense. We, um, I decided to hold these two conferences uh, in 2022 and 2023 to sort of announce our archival project to the world. We, we have about 15 collections now in this archive, well over a million documents, um, they were actually started by Jacques Vallée, who approached me in about 2014 asking for help to place his files and correspondence in a, in a university archive. I went back to my own institution and say, hey, can we do this? And, and it turns out we could. And so we initiated this with Jacques, but then a whole bunch of other researchers then um, essentially gave us their life work. And I felt that this was a really important thing to do in, in the humanities and the social sciences and, and the sciences. Um, and so to hold th these conferences. When we did that, it, it shattered every IT model that the university had. The, 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 the response was incredible, Andy. You know, just to give you an example, when we host a lecture we typically get about 500 views for the entire life of the lecture. We had a we had 150,000 views in two weeks. You know, yeah, it was just like it was like global and it was overwhelming. And our IT people were just like, "Oh my God, what are you? What is going on?" And these were huge events. This is about 200 people came at each of these events. And we, I hosted about 30 different academics and experiencers uh, really from around the world, from Argentina to France, to Canada, to the U S to the UK. And my experience of it was that intellectuals very much want to do this. They very much want to talk about these things but they generally lack a context or a community of other intellectuals, historians, philosophers, anthropologists, you name it, doing it. And so what these conferences do is they provide that context. They provide that community and, and people come in from all over the world, either physically or, or online, and they, 
they, they can watch these addresses and take part in this conversation. Have you got plans to host another in 2024? Um, so I, I'm on leave at the moment, um, a sabbatical. I, I spent four years in a dean's office. I'm exhausted, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I've been dealing with other people's problems for four years, and I'm just, I'm just freaking tired. Um, so there won't be one in 2024. I do hope to have one in 2025. Uh, and then to keep going, I should add that they're very expensive, Andy. Mm. <laughs> so I, I have to raise money every time I do one of these. And when I say very expensive, I mean, you know, they're three or four times what it costs to hold a regular conference because there's just so many people coming. There's so much food involved. There's so much, there's so much travel. There's so much room and board. Um, so I have to be, I have to be careful about, about the money. Um, to be really practical about it. No, that's completely fair. And I think that's something that Dr. Gary Nolan who and Dr. Peter Scaffish, who we'll go on to talk about now as well, will, will be to attest to in their own, their own hosting of the Sol Foundation. Now, as we record this, it's early December, Saturday the 2nd of December, to give folks a peek behind the curtain. Um, Dr. Nolan, as of yet, hasn't given the full official green light for the information on the Sol Foundation to be discussed at length. That was something he asked for as a sort of academic handshake beforehand that people who attend don't share things um, online, keep it private, and as much as possible, once he gives the green light a few weeks after, there will be videos, there'll be discussions and all sorts as well. Um, that's sort of been adhered to, but um, this won't go out until the, the green light has been given, which I would expect will be any day now anyway. So we're going to talk about the Sol Foundation, but what was your experience? Uh, obviously, you were invited. You were you were a speaker on the Sunday, I believe. Was that correct? I, I spoke on Saturday. Oh, did um, you? Okay. Yeah, I was the last speaker um, to speak formally. Um and, you know, I think Gary and Peter wanted me to talk last to try to sort of bring things into the present, but also to kind of give a, um, I don't want to say a spiritual or a religious, but a kind of existential meaning to the event. And I said pretty much what I said earlier. I, you know, I come at this as a historian of religions. Um, much of the proceedings, as you no doubt know, at, at Stanford involve the sciences and public policy and politics. And that is very, it's a very different focus than we had at Rice. At Rice, the, the emphasis was very much on the humanities and the social sciences and on the experiencers themselves, really. Um, so I felt sitting there, you know, for the whole thing, I saw the whole thing, I, I listened to every talk very carefully. I felt that the Rice event on the Archives of the Impossible and the Soul Foundation event were very complementary. They were essentially two sides of the same coin or two sides of the same floating sphere, if you want to be flatland about it. Um, and I was frankly thrilled. I, I, I felt that the Stanford event was historic um, in, 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 in the ways we normally use that word. I, I felt like the, the papers and presentations Presentations were excellent, but there was something about just holding the event in the medical school at Stanford University that was incredibly significant. And, um, you know, we finally had a voice, as it were. And so I, I think it was that authorization that was, was really what will 
be remembered about that that event um, long after we we've forgotten what individuals said. Yeah, I think it's, and this is no disrespect to any other events or conferences that happen, but it's one thing renting a, an expo hall somewhere, you know, a big empty shell and filling it with stages and booths, but to have a credible facility like that host an event that was clearly discussing, and let's put it bluntly, UFOs and, you know, the science and the academia around that, it's it was a big thing. Um, as much as, you know, Harvard with Avi Loeb, the New York Times, Leslie Keane, Ralph Blumenthal, Helene Cooper, you're starting to get some big organizational names entertaining the subject. Uh, and I think that's something that when I asked you earlier about, are we are we moving into that new phase? That's my hope that these big names continue to come on board. What were the conversations like for folks like yourself mingling? Because you were literally sitting next to these individuals, you know, names that folks in UFOs will know well, folks that names who are now just becoming more prominent, such as a Carl Nell, um, what was that like? Well, I knew a lot of these people, of course, before the event. And so it, part of it was simply meeting old friends. <laughs> and, but, but again, there was this historical element to it. It was meeting a friend at an event that we knew on some level meant something. Um, and I really want to really emphasize that institutional or, or cultural cachet that that the that the organization had the, something similar by the way happened at rice and in the years before that is that when the academics came they recognized very quickly and clearly that we were treating the subject with a great deal of gravity and that this was a research university and that all of the the powers and all of the money and all of the stuff that a research university represents was being focused on this. And so it that felt different as well, by the way. And I think when people have that voice and have that kind of space, they'll often say things that they 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 certainly think, but they might not otherwise say. Um, and I think that's what happened at Stanford. And and I know that's what happened at Rice. Your um essay or talk was titled Well I've Given from what you sent me, shooting down souls, good luck with that. Some paradoxical thoughts on the UFO phenomenon from a historian of religions. And I like that because something that came from the essay and, and what it sounds like is people can talk about this with a smile on their face and acknowledge, do you know what? Some of this might sound ridiculous, but to appeal to those who are maybe not in the room yet, but looking through the door, looking through the window with an interest to try and get them in. You know, we're aware of what we're saying. We're aware of the language being used. We're aware of the connotations. But here is out. Let's have a conversation. And those that multidisciplined approach, I think, is huge in getting this forward. So a lot of what you said within the essay, you've mentioned at the start of the podcast. But what were some of your, what did you want folks to take away from that overall talk? Well, that the saucer and the soul are very much related. Um, and that when people talk about these things as threats and want to shoot them down, they, they basically are talking about shooting down souls. And of course that makes no sense, Andy. That's a, that's a category, um, you know, collision there. And that was the point of the joke. And that was kind of the point of the talk is, look, we're, we're talking about, things that are clearly related, but you're splitting them up in a way that is probably not truthful to what's going on. You know, I have to say, though, um, the other participants, th that talk was received very well. 
by the way. And I don't believe for a second that there's any bad will or, or uh, anything other than good intentions in everyone else. Um, everyone's trying to do the right thing. And um, the the military and the political people who are there, they're, they're just, they're trying to get this talked about. They're trying to get it on the table. And the truth is, is that the stuff in Congress and the whistleblowers has really helped mm. the conversation. I mean, it really has given us a kind of, um, um, I don't want to say cover, but it's given us an authority in the culture that we we certainly lack. Before, you know, it was a kind of eye rolls and there's always a joke of a tinfoil hat or a little green man or something. Um, not so much anymore. Yeah. I mean, people are like, um, wait a minute, um, something showing really is on the radar and now the government's talking. We just have this bill with all these this language of non-human intelligence. I mean, what's going on? You know, I mean... The, the giggle factor is not so funny anymore. And I, th I think that that's really healthy. Um, it's not a conclusion. It's not what we want, but it's better than we had. I'll, I'll put it that way. And another theme within it is that resistance to normalization. Uh, you mentioned earlier as well that there's the giggle factor, I think is a big barrier within that. And just, the, I've always thought in the UK, we are, even further behind the US in this conversation still. In the UK, if this story, or if it appears in the news, it's a, and finally, and there is the X-Files music, we have the flying saucer goes by, the little green man waving at the screen, and there's a, there's a laugh and a joke. The same story could be positioned at the beginning of the news, at the top of the hour, really serious music with one of their top journalists presenting, and it has a whole different perception. How do you think we can get to the point where those stories do shift how, how do we move it and even i don't know if you can talk for the uk but we seem to really struggle with that here yeah so i think some of that is is inevitable i mean you know one of the phrases is thrown around a lot in the u.s is ontological shock and that comes from well john mack made it famous in the 90s but it actually goes back to a theologian named paul tillich believe it or not in the 1950s but what it refers to clearly in Mac is this notion that whatever is going on does actually does not feel cannot be fit into our normal categories. <laughs> um, and I do think that to the extent we normalize this or we make it reasonable or, or frankly scientific, we don't understand it. And, and that's a really hard message, Andy. People want their world to make sense, and they want to know that the world can be fit into their boxes. And what I think a lot of these events tell us is that that's not true. Um, so, you know, I think the ontological shock is, is, is um, a problem. I also think, you know, I, this is Jeff now at 61. I talk to journalists. I talk to media people. I talk to television and film people. And in the back of my head, I'm just thinking, oh, you were you were my student. And they, of course, were not my student. But what I'm thinking of is, oh, you're just you're just another guy or another gal, or you're just another human being. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, and you're talking to me to try to figure it out. And I guess what? I don't know either. So let's just admit we don't know. Um, but that's what people are really bad at admitting, including the media, frankly. 
Um, the media um, can be really, really powerful and good, um, and it can really be stupid and bad. And I've seen both. Uh, and and I think that's that's part of the problem. The other the other issue is people like me now, people in the academy have done a very poor job communicating to the public about what we do. And I think that has to change. Uh, I think we have to grab the public space and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to probably say things that you probably shouldn't say, things that are wrong, and that's okay. We're still going to get a message out there that I think is is more sophisticated and nuanced than we have today. I think that acceptance that people are still people at the end of the day, like you say, the military, politicians, scientists, academics are still individuals and there's going to be mistakes. And especially in the UFO community, but as well as many others online and social media, the slightest slip up or miscommunication or retelling of the same anecdote, but very slightly different gets jumped on and attacked. And that happens more and more. And I just wonder the last week, especially Jeff with politicians taking the stage and discussing UFOs in a big way right now in the US or UAP. I think it's shown that for for many who wondered, and I don't know where I stand on this really historically, let's get politics involved in the UFO topic. Let's get them discussing UFOs and legislation. We've seen how much they've muddied the waters just in the space of a couple of weeks and how heroes have become villains and villains are starting to become heroes and, and something in between. And it is just getting a bit messy now. Yeah, and I think so. Again, I think the problem always is deeper than we imagine. You know, I like take the political and the military stuff again. I mean, what people want to say is, oh, the disinformation campaigns and the deception. This is all about the military or, or the politics or the or the, the the bad actors. But the phenomena itself is deceptive. You know, and that's in function of intelligence, by the way. If you are intelligent, guess what? You're going to camouflage yourself. You're not going to tell your the 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 person studying the guerrilla tribe is not going to walk into the the guerrilla the group of guerrillas and just do his or her thing. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna use some camouflage or deception, and I think that's you know one of the things I feel very strongly when I after twenty years of this is that the phenomenon itself is deceptive. It ain't what it seems to be, folks. Um, but that's not and that's not a bad thing necessarily. It just is. And I think once we understand that, we could again, we can be this is what I meant by nuance and sophistication. And I think a lot of the conversation going on in the US Congress and in the in the US media is frankly naive. Um, and I just want them let me put it bluntly. When NASA puts together a team of intellectuals to study the UFO, I want them to put an anthropologist and a philosopher and a historian on there too. For God's sake, don't give us just physicists and astronomers. Stop it. Stop. Okay? Just stop it. And I don't mean that the astronomers or the physicists don't have something to say. Of course they do. But so do the philosophers and the anthropologists and the historians. You need to listen to them as well. And that's what I, I suppose 
I say the most often, I call it my crabby stage. I mean, I'm in a crabby stage of life, but I really believe that, Andy. I really, I really don't think science is going to get us there at the end of the day. I think science combined with a historical and kind of humanistic approach will get us a little further, but one or the other, nope, ain't going to work. Let's start looking at some listener questions to kind of wrap up and summarize some of the, the topics we've looked at. Um, so, Jeff, we had David emailed in to say, uh, a spiritual person firmly believes that the spiritual world is divided into increasing levels of attainment, whereby over thousands of years, one's level may rise as our experience, knowledge and kindness and good works grow. Surely it's safe to assume that these non-human intelligences are many thousands of years in advance of us. Because of this huge disparity and advancement, is it safe to assume these entities cannot have any malevolent intent towards us? I don't think we should assume anything. I mean, again, that notice that the the email, I mean, it, it's sort of, it's like references a reference. There's a kind of third or fourth kind of uh, a person there this model of of some species being more advanced than other species, of course, is a post-Darwinian uh, kind of model that that we assume. That's again our myth. That's the mythology we we live in and swim in. It may be true. Maybe these non-human intelligences are more highly evolved than us. I don't know, but I just want us to own that story. I want us to reflect on it and be aware that that's that's a post-Darwin kind of narrative. Um, question from Newman. Uh, and again, this one's a little bit of a paragraph before we get to the question. So with many of the explanations brought forward for paranormality sitting right at the edge of our knowledge and understanding of the world, what will it take, in Jeffrey's opinion, for scientists engaged in quantitative research to accept any evidence of events that exhibit quote-unquote high strangeness? and not outright dismiss it as either law of large numbers, selection bias, magical thinking, or just glimpses of another one of Russell's teapots, claims being ultimately due to their obscure nature, unprovable by any study design or instrumentation? Okay, that's a big question. I, I, I think this is where we need the historian of science to step in, or the philosopher of science, and I think we need to be more humble about our science. Um, my response to that question is not to say that these are somehow superior forms of knowledge, but these are not scientific forms of knowledge. Science, you know, is really good at studying objects and measuring them and predicting their behavior. Whatever is going on in these phenomena also has to do with subjectivity and mind and consciousness. And science is frankly really bad at that. It, it, it doesn't, the scientific method does not have a place in it for subjectivity or consciousness. So I just want to say, let's let science be science. Let's, let's let it do what it does really, really well. But let's also acknowledge that some kinds of questions are not scientific questions. Um, so that would be my answer to the, the email is, again, this is why you need historians and, and anthropologists and and philosophers on on the team as well, because they're going to call into question those scientific assumptions about reality. Let me let me put it this way: just because science works doesn't mean materialism is true. That that doesn't follow at all. But that's the assumption people I think often make. 
that what exists is what science can prove or establish. Well, that's not that's not true. You know, again, scientists are people. They have they have feelings and emotions and they love their children and they have all kinds of things in their lives that cannot be measured and that, that have nothing to do with their science. So I I just want I just want to again call out our assumptions there. I like that use of, you know, you can't measure love, but you know, you still know it's there. So that's <laughs> someone can throw that back at Neil deGrasse Tyson one day, I think. Um so well, it's, uh, not, it's not just that, you know. My joke, Andy, is that a lot, for example, a lot of paranormal phenomena involve trauma. And I mean serious trauma. I don't mean a little trauma. I mean big-time trauma. Like, like near-death experiences, you almost have to freaking die to have a near-death experience. And even then, you might not have a near-death experience. And so when debunkers say, oh, well, you can't get that in a laboratory, therefore it doesn't exist, I'm like, no shit. Of course you can't get it into a laboratory. There's no trauma there. You're not you're not killing anyone. You're not harming anyone. Thank goodness. You know? So don't don't go to the North Pole and tell me there are no zebras. Say I'm at the North Pole and guess what? There are no zebras here, but so what? There are zebras in sub-Saharan Africa. I know yep. that. You know, so it's all about your content. This is where a historian will kick in. It's all about the context again and what a particular culture or context will allow or, or what lives in a particular zone and what doesn't live in another zone. Um, I've got a question from Stuart and his first, he's got two questions, actually. The first one is around the Chris Bledsoe family story. How familiar yeah. are you? Yeah, you're familiar with it. I'm um, very familiar with it. Yeah. Um, so what is your opinion of Chris Bledsoe's interpretations of the events surrounding him and his family? Do you believe in the religious interpretation or something else? Well, I think Chris, you know, of course I know Chris and I, I read UFO of God. I know the book. I think Chris is very brave um, in the book and that he's trying to integrate a pretty dramatic set of UFO experiences into what's essentially a conservative Christian worldview. And I think that's that's hard to do. Um, so I would say I understand what Chris is doing and I admire it, but I think those those two worldviews are ultimately exclusive of one another. Is, is probably what I would say. Um, but that's that says nothing about Chris. Again, that's not a condemnation or a criticism of Chris at all. It's just a reflection from someone who studies religion, you know, in a kind of comparative fashion. I've hosted Chris and Ryan on the podcast um, previously, and I've been very open to say a lot of the, the orb phenomenon I struggle with. Um, I see a lot of posts that I believe are dust on cameras. I see a lot yeah. of posts that I believe are satellites in the sky. Right. And I'm not saying that everything is, but I see an overwhelming amount that is, let's just say, inconclusive either way, because it's a dot against a black background. Yeah. And again, when I read a book like UFO of God, I'm looking at the religious components, Andy. Mm. I'm not, I'm not looking at whether someone's seeing a satellite or, or yeah. a UFO. I, I, that that's well outside of my expertise. Okay. I, I'm going to believe the satellite expert or the, or the radar ex, expert. I'm not going to believe myself, but when I see somebody using um, some form of Christianity or some form of Hinduism or some form of Buddhism or whatever it is, to understand their their experience, then I feel like I have something to say. 
Uh, the next one, uh, scientific question, still from Stuart, and I'm going to bastardise the pronunciation of this, but I'm sure you'll know what I mean when I say it. Um, do you have any thoughts or insight which can be shared on the thesis that increased connectivity between the caudate putamen, that part of the brain Gary Nolan's discussed in various, uh, leads to a higher propensity for esoteric experience? And if so, why might this be? Again, I'm not a brain scientist. I'm not a neuroanatomist. I'm not Gary Nolan. Um, I just don't know. Um, and I'm going to listen to what Gary has to say about that. I'm not, I'm not going to listen to what Jeff Kripal has to say about that. Um, I just, I just don't know. I, you know, one of the things you learn when you're, when you're a professional intellectual is you stay in your, stay in your track. Stay, stay in your lane. Yep. Stay in your lane. Don't, you know, Every time an entertainer gets up at an award ceremony and starts talking about the environment, or so I'm just like, oh come on! I mean, stay in your lane, you know, stay yeah. in your lane. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay in my lane there. You don't want to be sting flying around the world to tell us at a conference or a award ceremony to stop boiling kettles because it's bad for the environment. Um, I <laughs> no, understand that. Yeah, I'm gonna um, stay in my lane. <laughs> Uh, question from Mark. Many people believe that the phenomenon is already here, walking among, walking among us on Earth. Assuming this is true, how do you think the general population will react? And is there risk of a witch hunt or civil unrest? Or are we unlikely to accept those entities being yeah. among us? Yeah, so I can speak to that more broadly. I mean, I actually spoke to that at the Soul Foundation, by the way. Um First of all, one of my jokes is, you know, strange beings come out of the sky and, and mess with people. That, that's what we call religion. You know, though th this, this thing, this presence, whatever we want to call it, has been here a long, long time. As far back as we can see in human history, actually. So I am not of the school that this is a post-atomic uh, bomb phenomenon. I know there are people who believe that and who think that. And maybe it's gotten more cultural relevance in the Cold War, but I doubt very much it's been any more prominent in people's experience, although maybe I'm, I'm willing to be educated there. Um, how people will react to it, you know, even if it's been here throughout human history, it doesn't mean that human cultures that have developed are going to do well if it if it shows itself, if, if there's some kind of disclosure. I actually don't think most cultures and most religions are capable of that. I, I'm more on the negative side of the of the equation. However, I do understand what people on the positive side are saying. They're, they're essentially saying religion has this vertical dimension. There's something transcended to the human being, and therefore it can incorporate some kind of disclosure event in a, in a more efficient way. I get that. Uh, I'm fine with that. But I just think, I think whatever this thing is or whatever the nature of this presence is, it's going to mostly violate, mostly um, not fit in to what our assumptions are and what our beliefs are. And people, Andy, people are very bad at not identifying with their beliefs, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is, please don't believe your beliefs. Please, please don't think your thoughts. Please step out of your assumptions. But that is so rare. Uh, and that is so hard for people to do that. And, but I think that's what this thing will, will be about uh, if, it ever, if it ever really reveals itself in any kind of serious way. 
I've had a few folks over the last couple of years, the podcast been going now three and a half years, God, nearly four, nearly four years next year, um, say to me that, you know, if we do get UFOs landing on the White House lawn, you know, is that not the podcast finished? And I was like, oh God, no, that's when the questions begin because that's when all the interesting conversations get to start. And, you know, yeah, so for me, it's like you say, if it ever unveils itself in a true meaningful way, I think there's a whole lot more to understand and, let, let me give you an example with the White House lawn comment. First of all, it assumes that the White House lawn is even significant. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, who says? Who says? I mean, clearly, whatever this phenomenon is doesn't give a whit about our borders or our boundaries or our cultural identities. Not one whit. It's a, it's a global phenomenon it goes on all over the world. It's been going on for as far as we can see back. It simply doesn't care about your nation state or your culture or your religion. Um, and that is that to me is the, the, the spiritual revolution that we have to have. We have to go through that ourselves to see, to recognize what's actually going on here. Um, but again, that requires a kind of comparative or global mindset that i think is is fairly rare um at at this point you mentioned two very different ufo movies earlier jeff um, independence day and arrival have you ever seen district nine i have i I always love the beginning of any alien movie certain things that interest me is how they arrive why they arrive and you know like you say communication aspect all that kind of stuff and the idea that it starts off with, you know, aliens land over a slum in Johannesburg, South Africa, rather than over Paris or New York or somewhere uh, glamorous and the refugees, while they've got this incredible technology, they're suffering themselves as a civilization and they need help. And I always enjoyed that idea that it was something totally different, landing somewhere totally out of the norm, which uh, yeah. which could very well be the case. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's been a while since I saw that movie, Andy. Um, but I, that's one of, again, one of the conclusions I think one reaches if you sit with this long enough is that it just, it's not restricted to any culture or nation state. It just, it just isn't. I think the reporting is, and clearly the movies are made in particular cultures, but it's clearly the reception is a cultural phenomenon, but the actual phenomenon itself um, is, is global. Yeah, if I say to you, I'm going to write a script, Jeff, and you're a Hollywood executive, and it's about a an interaction between an alien spacecraft and a indigenous tribe somewhere in you know Northeast Asia. Okay, that's one thing, but okay, let's move that to Chicago, and it's a fight to the death between the last humans, and oh, that's now going to sell. You know, that's got dollars all over it. So I understand those different approaches and and what works in Hollywood. I I, I ran a, a four year. Um, conference series once on the paranormal and popular culture. And I invited all these Hollywood people to come, special effects people, directors, the artists, that kind of thing. And I kept asking them, I'm like, can you make a movie about the paranormal that does not involve spandex or things blowing up? And their answer was no. And I was like, why? I, I We have all these people who know everything about the parent they could help you but you can't just make basically people punching each other out kind of movies and their response was we know what sells 
We know it makes money. We we don't know if that'll make any money, actually. And so we're not going to do it. And I was like, okay, that's an answer. That's an honest answer, actually. Um, and now, now I know. You know, I don't know why the movies are so bad on this. Um, but occasionally you'll see one that's really good on this. Yep. Uh, I, I, I'm the first to, to, to admit that. I mean, I, I thought Arrival was brilliant. But by the way, it's a Canadian director. You know, Is that why? Well, <laughs> it should tell you something right away. That yep. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's coming from uh, outside, outside the U.S. for sure. Um, finally, last question from Peter. Uh, Peter likes to send in a lot of questions and I had to sift through them for this one. Um, Peter asks, is the ontological shock argument potentially just a smokescreen to cover up misdeeds and illegalities conducted by humans? I don't think so. I, you know, I sit and talk to experiencers a lot, people who have experienced abductions, and ontological shock is a real thing. It's a real human response to something that absolutely does not fit into any any model of reality they have. And and just to sort of force this, I mean, I think our we have two instincts. If you're trained in a field like I am, you're you're going to reduce everything to society. You're going to say, oh, this is a function of language or culture or fantasy or science fiction or identity or or politics or or the social system if you're a natural scientist you're going to reduce everything to nature you're going to say oh this is a function of physics or or chemistry or matter or whatever or whatever it is space time i don't think whatever this this presence is is reducible to society or nature and i think that's why it's so shocking to to people is they just can't fit it in to their their the 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 water they swim in doesn't work. Um, so no, I don't think ontological shock is a cover or a screen. I, I think it's a real response, and I think it's really worth thinking with and pursuing. Final question then for me, Jeff, is if if you have to summarize what this UFO phenomenon may be in you know a few sentences or less for someone coming up to you and asking you know what's all this about? I've just attended the Sol Foundation because I was in the wrong room and I heard your talk and it was fascinating and I was never into this alien stuff, but what's it all about? What would you say in a few sentences? Well, what is, okay. So are you asking me what the phenomenon is about for a conference or are you asking me what a UFO is? What, what are you asking me, Andy? So I've attended a conference by mistake and I'm just Joe Q public. And, you know, I wasn't into this whole alien thing, but I'm asking you as the expert I've just seen on stage in your field, you know, what is this? Is there something to it? These aren't aliens, are they? You know, that type of question. Okay, okay. Um, Okay, I do have an answer. Um, I think the extraterrestrial hypothesis is a belief system, like religion, like, like all kinds of religions. I don't think that these are extraterrestrials or aliens. I do think there's a real phenomenon here. Um, I think it's also a real physical phenomenon. I think it has a, a physics attached to it, and a, I think science actually can be applied to it. But I don't think it's limited to science or to physics. Um, so that that's really my answer. Yes, it's real. No, it's not an alien. What is it? I don't think we know. Uh, if you push me... Um, and you gave me some beer, which is what I always say, 
I would say I think it's us. Um, I think it's us from another space and time, actually, is what I really think. But I can't prove that, Andy. And that's not that's not a statement that a historian of religion should make. <laughs> but but again, you gave me enough alcohol, and I you know I I, I had a, a weak moment, and I told you told you what I really thought there. No, I appreciate that, Jeff. It's never an easy question to answer, I think, for most folks, um, especially when you're a serious academic as well. But I appreciate you and appreciate the time you've given us today as well. I would ask Jeff just to round off: how can listeners and viewers get in touch with you, and also how can they find your work? Well. Yeah. <laughs> if you want them to get in touch with you. Yeah. I mean, that's my, first, that's, that's like, I'm not so sure I want them to get in touch with me. Um, you, you can go to my website. It's jeffreyjkreipel.com. And that's a summary of all the books I've written. Um, you can also go to impossiblearchives.org and you can see all of the talks and all of the lectures of the two conferences there. You can of course write me. I mean, I, I'm being trying to be funny, but you can write me at Rice and and just write me. The problem is I can't keep up with everything, and so that's that's my hesitation. I mean, has, no. this took us three months to 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 schedule, right? I mean, I I'm really bad, and this is and I'm not bad. It's just a mark of finitude. I I, I can't do everything. No, that's totally fair. And uh, I'll put all of those links in the description for this. So if you're watching or listening, thank you very much. Thank you to Jeff. Click on the links, support his work, check out the website, check out those videos. And hopefully when this comes out, those uh, videos and images and discussions from the Sol Foundation's inaugural conference will also be available as well. Jeff, lovely speaking with you and hope to have you back on soon. Thanks, Andy. It was, my, it was really my pleasure. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show out on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium. YouTube, you can sign up and be a member or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right inside of my window and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. 